Please turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew 11. And when you get there, look for verse 11. And we're going to start this morning by just reading the scripture uh, that we will be looking at. Looking at really a two whole chapters, but we're going to be majoring on this section of scripture. Jesus has just gotten some word and a question from John the Baptist, who was in prison. And we're going to talk a little bit about that later. But, but here is, is how he responds to the people around him after he gets this message from John. Uh, I'm going to pick it up partway through in verse 11. So Matthew 11, verse 11. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah, who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came, eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. For the last few months, First Alliance Church has been looking for a new staff member. And this is a person an associate pastor who will have responsibilities in the areas of discipleship and also worship. And as we always do when we look for a new staff member, uh, we developed a written and very detailed and specific job description, which was reviewed and was circulated among the board and the elders and sent off to the Christian Missionary Alliance and sent off to some Bible schools, seminaries, places like that. And that job description is, uh, it, yeah, it's on paper, but it's basically the picture of a person. The person that we think will have the right skills and experiences and gift mix uh, to be a good fit for this position at First Alliance Church. Now, of course, whenever we do this, and we've done it several times uh, since I've been here, we make up a job description, we interview people, we go through the hiring process, and we look back on the process after the person comes, and we realize that the person that we hired, even if it turned out to be a really good hire, didn't always check off all the boxes in the job description. Maybe it was pretty close, but you know what? Nobody ever seems to fill in all those check marks. And those of you who have done a lot of hiring or done a lot of interviewing and been in that, in that, um, in that field can probably relate to this experience. There's very rarely a perfect match. I've even talked to uh, some married couples where at least one of the partners during their search for a mate has developed um, basically a job description, uh, a list of all the things that would be true of, of his or her future wife or husband. And if you know any of these couples, it's often very humorous to, to look back after, even after years of a long and happy marriage to see how different the eventual spouse turned out to be from that list of qualities of the supposedly ideal candidate. I don't know how many of you had a list like that. Maybe you could tell me later or compare it with your spouse. If you did have a list like that, my guess is that God threw you a couple curveballs um, in the process. You're looking at your spouse right now and raising your eyebrows and saying, yeah, he sure did. <laughs> 
But we're going to see in Matthew 11 and 12, these two chapters, that the nation of Israel, uh, when, when Jesus arrived on the scene, the nation of Israel in one way was very ready for him to come. They, they were looking for their Messiah. They were looking for their deliverer. They were looking for their king, their savior, this person that would come and deliver them. Messianic fever was running very high in Israel around the time that Jesus came. And the thing that had happened was the people of Israel had developed some very well-defined job descriptions of what this person, the Messiah, would be like, what kind of qualifications he had to exhibit in order for them to consider him for the position of Messiah. Now, if that sounds a little bit strange to you, it should. You're already beginning to see the problem. God, God rarely fills in all of our check marks for us, right? And when Jesus says, this generation, at the end of the passage we read, this generation is like a bunch of little kids saying, we played the flute, why didn't you dance? We played a dirge, why didn't you cry? He is talking about these expectations that they had for him, not just for him really, but for John the Baptist too. These expectations they were trying to squeeze people into, first for the great prophet and then for their Messiah. Now today we don't play the flute and and have people dance, and we don't necessarily sing dirges and ask people to cry. Today it's a little different. You know how some song introductions are just so unmistakable that when you hear the introduction you have to sing the song? I see some people nodding. You know. I, I, was, I, I liked music back in the 80s, you know, and back in the 1980s, you know, Frank Sinatra came out with one last great song, right? And if in the 1980s, if you went up to somebody and you said, dun, how did it go? Dun, 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 dun. Help me out here. Right. Okay. I forgot the introduction, but once you hear the introduction, you have to say, start spreading the news, right? If the teenagers are like, this is insane. What is going on here? Um, but there's a, when you hear the introduction, you kind of have to sing the song, right? But the thing, this is what happened when Jesus came. They were playing the introduction, for the Messiah, and they had set the stage, and the lights were all set, and the man was supposed to come on the scene, and he did pretty much what y'all just did. He didn't sing the song when the introduction was over. In fact, he came singing a very different song than the one that they were ready for him to sing, and that resulted in a ton of conflict and opposition and major issues. Today, we're going to look, to look a little bit at the, at the opposition to God's kingdom, what Jesus is talking about in verse uh, 12 when he says that the kingdom of heaven is suffering violence and violent people are taking hold of it, he's talking about this opposition. And we're going to look at what it looked like back then and what it looks like today, and especially what it looks like today in our own lives. Because yes, there's opposition that's external to, to us, and, and we tend to think about that when we think about resistance or opposition to the kingdom of God, but if we're honest, we have to realize that a lot of the opposition to God's kingdom actually comes from inside our own hearts. And we can't really have God's kingdom move through us until it moves into us and takes over us first. And so I want to help you today recognize the ways that this opposition takes form in your own heart and life and then maybe give you some steps to defeat it and to begin to, to get rid of it. The opposition to Jesus' kingdom really came from three different angles. 
Um, the, the first type of opposition came, came at him really head on, and in many, many ways it's the easiest kind of opposition for Jesus to deal with, and that was what you might call the frontal assault of the kingdom of darkness on the kingdom of heaven, and it took the form of evil spirits, okay, demons, who were holding people in different kinds of bondage. Now, if you read through the Gospels, it's very obvious Jesus had lots and lots of encounters with people who were being oppressed or possessed even by demons. And every time Jesus comes across these people, you also might notice that he makes very quick work of the evil spirit whenever it happens. It's over almost before it begins. We talked last week about the fact that Jesus had absolute authority. We talked a lot last week about illness, but we also mentioned that he has absolute authority over any evil spirit. And time after time, when Jesus comes, we see these spirits submitting to Jesus' word right away, like immediately. In fact, half the time, they're begging him not to send them into the pit. These spirits are very frightened of Jesus, and they have no way to resist his commands. Now, it would be very naive of us today to think that there is no demonic activity around us, even in 2021. Now, think, things are not as cut and dry as they were maybe back in Jesus' day. In our more sophisticated Western world, I, I think that Satan's minions tend to prefer to hide behind other things. So demonic influence in someone's life may take the form of certain addictions or other forms of bondage. Uh, other times, the symptoms of being of dealing with, with, with evil spirits may overlap with symptoms of certain kinds of mental illness. So it can be hard sometimes to know what we're dealing with and we need to use discernment. But as followers of Christ, we need to know that we, we are authorized, we have authority to deal with evil spirits. We can lead people to deliverance as they renounce their cooperation with the enemy and believing in the lies that he's been telling them. And as these demonic demonic entities manifest themselves, we can speak authoritatively to evil spirits and command them to leave in Jesus' name. It's real. And if you or someone that you know is dealing with this kind of activity in your life, it takes different forms, addictions, bondages, hearing voices, there are, there are different things that may, may lead you to, to think that, that you're dealing with this, please don't battle it alone, but seek help. You can talk to me, you can talk to the elders of the church. We will get together and see where we need to go from here, but there is hope and there is authority to deal with your issue. But it was really the other two kinds of resistance that seemed to present Jesus with a more lasting problem. And both of these had to do with these, these job descriptions that I'm calling them, the, the wrong expectations or the, even the slightly off-base expectations that led people to reject and ultimately oppose Jesus. And ultimately, this kind of opposition got him killed. The next angle of attack that, that we really see throughout the Gospels, but it makes a, an appearance here in a very unexpected place in, in John chapter 11 is something that actually happens in the life of John the Baptist here. And John, John was obviously a very godly person. Uh, Jesus in, in verse 11 basically says there's no one more godly than John. John. John had been the forerunner of Jesus. John had come on the scene. His ministry started at least six months before Jesus' ministry started. Uh, John was actually Jesus' relative. Uh, but, but he came baptizing and, and was called a, kind of the, the fullback that cleared the hole for Jesus to run through the gap, is how I often think about it in, in sports terms. But John was, John was the first one on the scene. And the book of Malachi had said that before the Messiah came, before that deliverance came, Elijah would come. 
someone in the spirit and power of Elijah. The Old Testament talked about that too. And Jesus is saying, look, if you're willing to accept it, that's who John is and was. He's Elijah. And John faithfully prepared people for the Messiah's coming. And he pointed to Jesus every time he got the opportunity. Like in John when he said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I must decrease, he must increase. John was very faithful to point to Jesus. And you could make the case very easily that with the exception of Jesus himself, there was no one on earth that was closer to God than John was. Excuse me. But John was going through a crisis here. He's currently in prison, and he's been there for some time. And as he hears about the things that Jesus is doing, and probably also the things his disciples have been doing when they were sent out by Jesus back in chapter 10, John is wondering, he's wondering, why am I still in prison? Why in all of this miracle working and deliverance that I'm hearing about, why is there nothing for me? Why am I still in this place? Has Jesus forgotten about me? Or maybe, maybe he's not who I thought he was. You see, John... John had really stuck his neck out for Jesus in, in a way. He had stuck his neck out by criticizing Herod Antipas, the Roman-appointed uh, leader of Galilee, because of an improper and adulterous relationship that Herod was involved in, and that was the right thing to do, but it sure got John in trouble. Herod responded by throwing John in prison, and he was still there. And it seems like what John is thinking here is, look, the Messiah isn't supposed to let this happen. He's supposed to be more powerful than Herod. He's supposed to be more powerful than the Romans. He should be able to deliver me from this ridiculous, stupid situation that I'm in. What good am I doing for the kingdom of God when I'm rotting in this prison cell? And so in his confusion, maybe a little bit of disillusionment, John sends messengers to Jesus saying, are you really the Christ? Or should we wait for someone else? In fact, we find out later that John never gets out of prison. He gets beheaded there in what is, at least on the surface, one of the most random and meaningless deaths in the whole Bible, brought on by a, 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 a young lady dancing at a party in a certain way. But instead of Jesus saying, hang in there, John. I'm coming. I'm coming on the white horse, and I'm going to spring you out of there. He says, Blessed is the one who doesn't fall away on account of me. That's got to be a hard thing for John to hear. But you see, one of the job descriptions that was out there for the Messiah was what you might call the problem solver. The problem solver. The person who was going to change the circumstances. The, the person who was going to deliver Israel from this Roman menace that had been ruling and harassing them for generations. I mean, they would think, of course the Messiah can do that. He should do that. That's what he's going to do. Why wouldn't he do that? But Jesus is, is gently rebuking John here and reminding him not to fall into this error because it's actually a very dangerous one. In fact, I'm almost certain this is how Judas Iscariot was later bewitched by Satan into betraying Jesus to the authorities. I believe that, that, that Judas thought that Jesus was there to deliver Israel from the Roman oppression, maybe militarily, and usher in the glory of the kingdom. And of course, that would have been great for Judas, right? And Judas was in all likelihood trying to provoke a conflict that would force Jesus' hand and get him to take care of this Roman problem once and for all, but it didn't work out that way. 
And as we'll talk about at some length later in our series, there are people today for whom the coming of the kingdom of God means reforming or replacing all of the evil systems, all the evil institutions, governments of this world, putting an end to things like war and poverty and injustice and inequality, and they equate that with the coming of the kingdom. But it's important for us to understand that that's not what the kingdom looks like at this time. That's not what the kingdom looks like at this time. Time. It's true that Israel's Messiah would one day deliver them from political oppression and defeat the powers of Rome. Jesus will one day do that. Jesus will one day put an end to war and poverty and oppression. He will get rid of all those evil systems. But at that time, at that time, it was not on his agenda. In fact, incredibly, it wasn't even on Jesus' agenda to spring John the Baptist from prison. And that's a hard thing for us to hear. Because for most of us, if we're honest, at least part of our job description for Jesus is that he needs to be solving problems for us, right? He needs to be changing the negative circumstances that make our lives painful and difficult. And like John the Baptist, we find ourselves beginning to doubt Jesus, to doubt his power, to doubt his love, to doubt his interest in us when he doesn't show up according to our schedule or send us the help that we need at that moment or deliver us from trouble and conflict in the way that we would expect him to. But Jesus really says the same thing to us that he says to John the Baptist. He says, don't fall away. Don't fall away. Hang in there. It may not look very promising or very positive where you are right now. In fact, you may not see any rhyme or reason at all in what is going on in your life at this moment, but you need to know that I have an agenda in your life and in the lives of your children and your other family members and your loved ones. And that agenda may be different than you think. That agenda is actually way more important than me solving this particular problem for you in the way you want me to solve it at this time. We'll talk a little bit about what that agenda is later on. But first I want to look at the other form of opposition to Christ's kingdom that, that, that shows up here. We're going to see, this is really more in chapter 12 than chapter 11. In chapter 12, Jesus is very active again, doing a lot of miracles but in chapter 12, Jesus gets a lot of opposition from a particular group of men called the Pharisees, the Pharisees, because he is running afoul of their job description. They have a slightly different job description, and this culminates in a huge blow-up in verse 22 of chapter 12, where Jesus once again casts a demon out of a blind and mute person, and the crowds begin asking, could this be the son of David? Could this be the Messiah? And the Pharisees are, are so threatened by this that they respond by accusing Jesus of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And Jesus, this time, doesn't take it anymore. He comes right back at them, and he accuses them of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, and he says, that's not forgivable. That's the unforgivable sin. Whoa, now the battle's on, right? What happened here? What's going on? Well, the job description that the Pharisees had for the Messiah was a little bit different than the one that we saw earlier. For them, the Messiah, yes, would deliver Israel, but not necessarily by driving out the Romans, at least not right away, 
but by bringing the people of Israel back to God and teaching them to obey God's law. And when that happened, that would cause God to bless his people and usher in the kingdom. That sounds pretty good, right? That doesn't sound so bad. What's wrong with it? Well, the problem is the Pharisees wanted to be the policemen in the new kingdom. That's how they saw themselves. They envisioned themselves as the enforcers who would work with this Messiah who was kind of like a spiritual police chief when the Messiah came, and they would make sure for him that everyone was in compliance and doing things the way they had to be done, washing their hands the right way, showing up for services at the right time. And they were already getting a lot of practice at this, actually, because they come up with this whole list of rules that defined on their terms what it looked like to obey the Old Testament law. And these were external behaviors. These were things that you could see, things that you could measure, things you could even kind of write down and check off and say, okay, I got an 87 on my holiness score for the day. That's how the Pharisees were working. And a lot of these rules, a lot of them had to do with what you could and couldn't do on the Sabbath day, which was the last day of the week, and it was the week when the Jews were normally supposed to rest and worship. But they had gotten down to a whole system of what you could and couldn't do, how far you could walk, what kind of food you could prepare, etc., etc. And not only did Jesus keep consistently disobeying their rules, he seemed to be doing it on purpose. And when he did it, he even seemed to call attention to, to it, even in public, just to tick them off. Now, how could the Messiah possibly be so ungodly and unspiritual so as to do things like that? Of course this was a Messiah. This is not in Messiah's job description. So in chapter 12, Jesus is, and his disciples are walking through a grain field, and Jesus is letting his disciples pick and eat some heads of grain from the field as they walk through, which in Israel was perfectly lawful to do. But it was the Sabbath. And so the Pharisees come up, and they, 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 what they believe was that if you picked a head of grain to, to eat from, from, the, from the grain, just picking the head was harvesting. So you're harvesting on the Sabbath. And then if you kind of do this with your hands and work it back and forth to get to the kernel, you know, the, the edible parts, they would say, well, that's winnowing. That's winnowing on the Sabbath, which is labor. And you can't do that. Which is patently ridiculous, right? It's like saying you can't eat pistachio nuts on, on the Sabbath because shelling them is work. That would be horrible for me especially. But then in the next paragraph, they accuse Jesus of sin because he heals somebody on the Sabbath. In fact, they didn't do it here, but, but often they would accuse the healed person of sinning. They would say, hey, why are you coming today to get healed? There are six other days you can get healed. Show up then. Don't come now. That's how ridiculous it had gotten. That's how far the Pharisees had gone in, in, this, in trying to get everyone to obey their specific version of the law. And the power trip that came from this and eventually just gave them a ton of affirmation along with the great reputation they got as the most righteous dudes in town. And of course, there are people today, and I'm not going to call them Pharisees, but this is a cousin, who will say, you've got to be careful here, they would say that the key to bringing God's blessing back to the United States of America, or any other country for that matter, is for that country to go back to meeting the moral requirements of the Bible. In America's case, to return to our Judeo-Christian heritage and start taking the Ten Commandments seriously, and if we start doing that, God will bless us. Now, that wouldn't be a bad thing, right? But we have to be careful here. Is that the kingdom of God? 
Is that how the kingdom of God is going to come? Well, it's, it would make society a lot more pleasant in a lot of ways, right? But listen, establishing a moral code is not going to usher in God's kingdom. Any more than changing laws to try to end poverty and injustice will usher in God's kingdom. Why not? Because you can't legislate what goes on inside the hearts of people. And that is where the kingdom of God has to take root first. That's where Jesus was aiming. That was his agenda. He wasn't aiming at the evil systems of the Roman government, not at that time. He wasn't aiming just at people's external behavior. He was aiming at people's hearts. And that's why he got so upset with the Pharisees and accused them of committing the unforgivable sin. Here's what happened. In their pride and in their stubbornness and in their desire to, 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 to rule this morally upright kingdom of their own design, the Pharisees not only attacked Jesus and spoke against him, but when he cast out that blind and mute demon by the power of God's Holy Spirit, they actually accused him of doing it by the power of the devil. And Jesus said that's unforgivable. And here's why. Because in order to be forgiven, you need to repent. You need to truly repent, to turn your back on the sin and on fixing it yourself. And you need to turn to God. But none of us can repent just because we decide to repent. In order to repent, your heart needs to be changed. Your heart, not your behavior, your heart. You need to be changed at the very center of your being, the seat of your thoughts and your emotions and your will, where all that stuff happens. And just as it takes a miracle to make a blind man see or a mute person talk, it takes an even greater miracle to change a human heart. Now when it happens, when it happens, that miracle is so powerful that Jesus says, that in a way, you become immediately greater than John the Baptist. We read that, right? Why? Well, because the kingdom has come into your life. It takes a miracle to change a human heart. But only the Holy Spirit can perform that miracle. It's called making you born again. So if you finally and deliberately resist or reject the work and the power of the Holy Spirit, you cannot be forgiven because the only person who can soften your heart and enable you to turn back to God is the Holy Spirit. It, it could be that there are people here right now today in this room listening to my voice who have yet to turn to Jesus for forgiveness and eternal life. But you feel the Holy Spirit kind of maybe nudging you right now and he's saying to you something like this, look, this is the only way. This is the only way to find forgiveness. This is the only way to find peace. This is the only way to be right with God. Yes, you're broken. Yes, you're sinful. Yes, you're imperfect. But the perfect, the perfect one loved you enough to die for you and give himself for you in your place so that you could come to God, so that you could be forgiven, so that you could have a new life. What is keeping you from answering that invitation? There's a call here for Christians too, though. Because the spirit that was in those Pharisees can make inroads in our hearts sometimes as well. And it looks a little different maybe, but, but it can also halt the work of the kingdom of God in our lives. Let's say one day you were down in your basement, if you have a basement. 
and let's say it's a finished enough basement that you have, you know, drywall. And let's say you're walking along and one day you notice that there's a dent in your drywall in the basement. You hit it with a wrench or something like that and now there's a dent. And you're like, oh, I can't handle that because my basement wall has to look perfect. So I'm going to repair that drywall. And so you get out your saw and you cut out a square of that drywall, you're going to replace it. But when you do, you find out that there's a nest of termites behind it eating away at the wood of your house. Now, what would you do? Would you say, wow, I better get that new drywall patch on there fast? You know, so you quick, you know, you cut it to size, you screw it in, you feather the compound in just right, you sand it down, and you paint it as carefully as you possibly can so that, so that no one will ever know there's a problem there. There's just this vague kind of crunching sound behind the wall, but that's okay. No, I don't think you would do that. What would you do? You would call the exterminator, right? And yeah, it's a pain, but you don't want something like that slowly destroying the very structure of your home. Let me tell you about the Pharisees, because we have something in common with them, I think. They were really good at drywall repair, and they taught that skill to other people as well, but they never called the exterminator, and their lives were being eaten away from the inside out, because the Bible tells us that most of them were full of greed and pride and self-centeredness and bigotry, even as they kept the outsides of their life looking really good. And most of us are tempted to do the same thing because we'd rather work on the externals. We'd rather work on that part. The surface of our lives, yeah, there's a few dents in the drywall, but there, you know what? There are some pretty deep problems lurking in many of our hearts today. Some of you are carrying around a lot of anger. And most of the time you can keep it in, but occasionally it pours out in a fit of rage or a, or a barrage of a thousand little criticisms. Some of you are losing the battle with lust or pornography that's eating away at your mind and the intimacy level of your relationships. Some of you are self-medicating with alcohol or, or food or prescription drugs or something else that you use to, to cover up a frightening feeling of, of despair or some pain. Some of you are refusing to forgive someone who has hurt you and that unforgiveness has turned into bitterness and it's eating away at you and you think about that person way too much. Some of you are so addicted to the approval of others that you can't stop working to please them and you live your life in constant fear of failure and when you do fail you find that you have to lie or at least stretch the truth to cover it up. These are heart ailments. There are heart problems, and they cannot be treated at a surface level with Pharisees, rules, and regulations. Even things like more church attendance. I don't know how many times I've talked to people, yeah, pastor, I just need to get back in church. Well, yeah, you do. But that's not the answer, ultimately. I just need to, to get into the Bible more and, and, and pray a little more. Yeah, you do. But you know what? The, the path for healing for all these things is the same. And it's the failure to do this thing that makes Jesus so exasperated with the towns of Galilee that he was preaching in. It's called repentance. You know, repentance is for Christians too. It isn't just for non-Christians. We need to do it pretty frequently. Repentance is a change of heart and mind which starts with, with letting your guard down 
being honest with yourself, being honest with God, and probably being honest with at least one other person in most cases, and flushing these internal heart sins out into the open so they can be dealt with. And this is hard, and sometimes it's a little bit embarrassing, and it requires trust, and it requires courage. It may mean reaching out to someone who can help. I can tell you right now that in some of these areas, including pornography and alcohol, there are people in this congregation who have already come to me and said, if anyone has that problem, send them to me, because they know what it's like. But either way, a lot of us here today, maybe it's individuals, maybe it's couples, maybe it's whole families, need to put down you know, the drywall saw and call the exterminator because it doesn't do just to make everything look good on the outside. In the long run, you know what? You can clean up your act all you want, but that doesn't stop it from being an act. The good news is this. Jesus can and will help you and heal you at the heart level. He can really do it. As you learn to apply his love, his approval, his power, his forgiveness, his courage, and all the other things that flow from his cross in your life, there is a victory that that Jesus wins that can exterminate the deepest sins in your life, can deal with your deepest fears, and can really make you new again. But first you have to recognize the resistance to the rule of God that is taking place in your own heart and you have to turn it over to him. I, I want to close this morning by doing this. I'm, I'm going to pray for us, and as I do, I'll ask the worship team to come. Um, but go ahead and bow your heads. Close your eyes now. I just want to just maybe lead you in, in considering some things. Really ask you one big question. What form is the resistance to God's kingdom taking in your life? What does it look like? Is, is it some kind of satanic stronghold that manifests itself as, a, as an addiction or some kind of bondage that you just feel like you're trapped? Is it a sense of, of uh, doubt or disappointment or disillusionment that just has you soured on God because Jesus hasn't solved all your problems according to your prescription? Is it maybe some kind of a deep-seated attitude or issue in, in your heart that you can't treat at the surface, but, but you really need to, to repent of it and then kind of open up the inside because Jesus is aiming at your heart. You've been afraid to bring that thing out into the open, and you need to commit to at least tell one other person about it and start, start dealing with it. He can do it. Jesus really does have the medicine. Jesus really is the healer, not just of the outside, but of the inside of your life too. As we sing a couple of songs here at the very end, and they're pretty short, but, but I also, I want you to feel open if you need to come to the altar and just kind of kneel down at the altar, you can do that while we're singing. If you just want to kind of bow your head while people are singing around you in the pew and do business with God, you can do that. If you need to talk to someone afterwards, if you need to come up and talk to me afterwards, please, please feel free to do that. But don't leave here without a plan of action and without doing something to open this area of your life up to the Lord. There's a lot of pain in here that Jesus can deal with and will. Let's sing together. You don't need to stand.